several generations of Americans grew up with Casey Kasem's American Top 40. And if you take a look at the Top 40 songs for nearly any week over the last 50 years, you're going to find pretty much the same thing, right? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You're going to find songs about infatuation and broken hearts. You're going to find declarations of love and commitment for couples that are going to break up in three months. You'll find odes to, to beer and wine and other adult beverages. There are songs that revel in rebellion, songs that about dancing and partying and good times. Sometimes there are motivational tunes like We Are the Champions, Fight Song, or Roar. Now, during times of crisis, maybe a protest song will take a peek at the top 40. Every once in a while, a charity song becomes a hit. Think We Are the World or Tears in Heaven. And if you're looking at the country charts, well, then you're going to find anthems singing the praises of trucks or the occasional melody celebrating friendship or cheering God and country. Well, we're not talking about any of those songs. For the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at some rare birds, top 40 songs that get at theological truth. Now, these are more than just songs that make a, a moral point, have a spiritual theme, or, or use some biblical language in their lyrics. But these are five songs from five different eras that get into some aspect of the gospel message of salvation from sin until eternity. And we begin this week with a 1968 hit song, a song that reached the top 40 in 22 nations. It was listed by Rolling Stone magazine as number 106 of its greatest songs of all time. And the seeds for this song were sown in 1930s Soviet Union, and they were watered by a 19th century French poet. Now, in the 1930s, communist dictator Joseph Stalin ruled the Soviet Union with an iron fist. And by the end of his brutal reign, some 20 million dissidents were killed, imprisoned, enslaved, disappeared, or deported. Well, against this backdrop, author Mikhail Bugakov wrote a dark satire called The Master and the Margarita. And this book grappled with the ideas of, of, of good and evil in this atheistic communist regime. Now, Bugakov's novel portrayed the devil visiting 1930s Russia in the guise of a, of a distinguished professor. And it juxtaposed his visit with his role in the crucifixion of Jesus. But it took Bulgakov 12 years to finish his novel, which he barely finished by the time he died in 1940. And then it sat unpublished for years until an edited version appeared in a Soviet magazine. Now, copies of this were smuggled out of the Soviet Union to Paris, where it was published as a book. And it was one of these editions that found its way into the hands of British singer Marianne Faithful, who in turn passed it on to her then boyfriend, Rolling Stones lead singer Mick Jagger. Now, Jagger was also influenced by the French poet Charles Baudelaire. In his book, The Generous Gambler, the, the main character has a conversation with the devil. 
And uh, Baudelaire, in, the, in this book in particular, is famous for the quote where it says, the cleverest trick of the devil is to convince you that he does not exist. Well, Jagger read these two books at a, a vulnerable time. 1967 had been a, a tumultuous year for the Rolling Stones. The bandmates found themselves neck deep in fame and money and drugs and legal problems. Mick Jagger, as well as the two guitarists, Keith Richards and Brian Jones, had all been charged with drug crimes. Jagger and Richards had been tried, convicted, and sentenced to jail. Jagger for three months, and then Richards was to serve a full year. However, massive public outrage in Britain led them to serving only one night. There was also turmoil in the band when the girlfriend of one Stones guitarist dumped him to date the other. Their longtime producer and manager quit because the band often did not show up in the studio when scheduled. And when they did show up, there were these dozens of hangers-on in their entourage. Uh, their previous album had been the subject of controversy. It had generated negative reviews, as well as accusations that they had copied the Beatles. And the world outside was filled with strife as well. The war in Vietnam was in full swing. There were protests and riots in the streets of both Europe and American cities. Campus uprisings were a daily feature in the news. Czechoslovakia and Poland were, were both bucking at Soviet control and the Soviet Union responded by flexing their military muscles. And all of this political unrest was highlighted by the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Robert F. Kennedy uh, in 1968, while the Stones were in the studio recording their next album. And, and it, Jagger even changed one of the lyrics in the song to reflect these events. And it was in this environment, in this context, that, that Mick Jagger was wrestling with the reality of evil, not just in the world, but in his own life. And in this song, singer Mick Jagger takes on the persona of Bulgakov and Baudelaire's devil. He introduces himself as a, a sophisticated socialite, a, a man of wealth and taste. However, he keeps his identity under wraps throughout most of the song, repeatedly inviting the listener to guess his name. And Jagger's devil boasts about playing a central role in some of history's most notorious atrocities, right? the crucifixion of Jesus, the communist revolution in Russia, the Hundred Years' War, the Nazi Blitzkrieg, as well as the assassination of the Kennedys. But when the devil does finally reveal his identity, he asks for the listener's sympathy and understanding because, after all, the devil accuses, all of humanity was complicit in these crimes. Now, the song's lyrics affirm that human evil is real, that, that Satan is the one pulling the strings behind the scenes to accomplish much more nefarious purposes. Keith Richards has said of the song, quote, 
it was a time of turmoil. It was the first international chaos since World War II. You want to think the world is perfect, but you can't hide. You might as well accept the fact that evil is there and deal with it any way you can. Sympathy for the Devil is a song that says, don't forget him. If you confront him, then he's out of a job. I I don't know how intentional it was, but much of the song is spot on in its analysis. These are realities that scripture affirms. The gospel message of salvation begins with the, the basic premise that, well, something has gone seriously wrong in our world, right? The good news begins with the bad news. The very fact that we need salvation means that we have to be saved from something. And the Bible tells us what that something is, right? God created a perfect world, but we can readily see the world is not perfect. And so God's word tells us what has gone wrong in that world. And it comes down to two basic things. We'll look at the second thing next week, but, but the first part is the reality of evil and the source of that evil. And of course, the Bible tells us the story of an angel who rebels against God, who leads this, this uprising, a coup d'etat attempt in heaven. And ultimately, Satan and, and his forces are defeated. They're thrown out of heaven. But Satan is not a name, all right? It's a title. It's a, a job title, really. It means the accuser, the slanderer, right? Satan is the one who brings charges against us. Think of him as a, a crooked prosecuting attorney. Now, when we turn to the pages of Scripture, here's what the Apostle Paul has to say about this reality in Ephesians chapter 6, beginning with verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate, uh, breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the, the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Now, when I first began putting this sermon together and outlining everything, the, the, the main theme or point that I wrote down was this. There is an enemy. But as I worked on the sermon, I realized, no, that's too distant. It's too impersonal. There is an enemy. No, it's worse than that. We have an enemy. You have an enemy. I have an enemy. Verse 11 calls him the devil. Diabolos in the Greek. And, and like Satan, Diabolos means one who slanders, one who accuses. Right? He's the one who accuses you. 
He slanders you. He tells you that you will never measure up. You don't have what it takes, that you will fail, that you will always disappoint. He'll make you believe that you've got nothing to offer, that you have no gifts to use. He'll convince you that God doesn't love you, that he doesn't want you and can't use you. Verse 16 calls him the evil one. Make no mistake. Our enemy is the opposite of everything good and wholesome and righteous. He is pure, unadulterated, irredeemable evil. Now, the Bible calls him by many different names or titles, the accuser, the destroyer, the father of lies, the murderer, the deceiver of nations, the thief, the tempter, and of course, the enemy. Okay, make no mistake, the devil hates you, right? The accuser doesn't love you. The destroyer doesn't want you. No, the murderer wants to destroy you. The father of lies will tempt you. He will tease you. The deceiver will promise you the world. He will make a fool's bargain with you, right? But just like Lucy in the Peanuts cartoon always pulls the football before Charlie Brown can ever kick it, right? The thief will never give you what he promised. And he will always take more than you bargain to give. So we have an enemy. Here's the second thing you need to understand about the enemy. Our enemy is spiritual. We have a spiritual enemy. And here's why I, I say this. We have an enemy. And it's not someone in your church. It's not someone in your family. It's not you know who from work. It's not a political party. It's not this group of people or that group of people. Now, certainly the the enemy may use those people. He may work through those people. They may even, they they may be victims of the enemy and they may even cooperate with the enemy at times. But, But hear me on this. They are not the enemy, right? Here's a newsflash. Sometimes our real enemy even uses you. Our enemy is Satan, and he is a spiritual enemy. Paul's very clear about this in verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. People aren't the enemy. And Satan loves it when we begin to fight with each other. Satan loves it when we begin to expend our time and energy and effort attacking other people as the enemy. All right, Satan loves it when we think that the enemy is someone with skin on, because as long as we think that they are the enemy, then we are not defending against the real enemy. You see, this passage points to a reality that is greater than the physical world that we can see and touch and hear, just experience with our five senses. There is a spiritual dimension to life that that encompasses and transcends everything. This is what Paul calls the the heavenly realms or the higher realms. It's called this because this reality is is greater than, higher than our physical world. The created cosmos exists within this greater spiritual realm, and this is where we'll find our real enemy. This is where the bulk of our defenses need to be aimed. So we have an enemy, Our enemy is spiritual. The other thing I want you to see is that our enemy is organized, right? 
our enemy is more than just Satan, but the, the, the devil has a host of allies. Verse 12 says that our struggle is against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, what's Paul talking about here? Who are all these characters? Well, this is the kind of language that the Bible uses when it's talking about demonic forces. And what Paul is describing here are, are various ranks and layers of spiritual forces, right? Satan did not rebel against God alone. Revelation suggests, or Revelation chapter 12 suggests, that, that one-third of the angels rebelled along with Satan. Now, their attempted coup failed. They were defeated. They were cast out of heaven. But Paul describes these demonic forces as having well, a chain of command with varying levels of, of spiritual power or authority. And verse 12 reads like the ranks of a military command, all right? You would have the general on top, and then you have your colonels, your majors, your captains, lieutenants, sergeants, all the way down to privates. Or you could look at it as like the layers of, of a government, from the emperor to the provincial governors, all the way down to the city magistrates. And so our enemy is an organized enemy. Don't look at them as just kind of this ravenous pack of, you know, wolves, the hounds of hell who, who are bloodthirsty and on the scent for human souls. And they're just kind of randomly going around causing chaos. No, there is a structure to our enemy. There is an organization that's arrayed against us. So we have an enemy. Our enemy is spiritual. Our enemy is organized. And we also see that our enemy has a plan, right? There's a strategy. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, right? Schemes, that word is important. Schemes means that, well, the devil is wily and crafty and devious, right? Our enemy has a game plan. And he will use any kind of trickery, any kind of subterfuge or deceit to, to tempt you, to stall you, to distract you, ultimately to destroy you. And these machinations work because well, they appear desirable and attractive, all right? But they're nothing more than a baited trap. In verse 12, Paul calls our battle against this enemy a struggle. And this is kind of a curious word choice because this wasn't a normal military term for battle. And, and military language is used throughout this passage. But in the first century, this was a word that was used for a kind of wrestling sport. Right? And we're not talking about professional wrestling here. So get all images of, of Hulk Hogan or The Rock or The Undertaker out of your mind. Right? There's nothing phony or scripted about our struggle with the enemy. All right, think of UFC and ultimate fighting because that's much closer to the actual picture. All right, there were no rounds, there were no gloves, there were no time limit. Oh, and you fought, well, in the nude. And there were only three rules, right? You weren't allowed to gouge out the eyes of your opponent. You weren't allowed to bite them. And since you were in the nude, you weren't allowed to attack, well, their manhood, right? Everything else was fair game. 
Now, a lot of scholars think that that Paul uses this wrestling term because it was very popular in the part of the Roman Empire where the city of Ephesus was. And so these Ephesian Christians would have been familiar with the sport. They would have related to this imagery. And that may be true, but I also think that Paul uses this, this term because it's personal, right? It's up close in your face. In modern terms, this is what we would call CQB, close quarters uh, battle. Right? This is hand-to-hand combat. Right? If you're a gamer, then we're talking about melee fighting. Nothing virtual about this, though. One other thing I want to point out here is that the way this is written in the original language tells us that our enemies' attacks are ongoing. They are continual, all right? Satan doesn't just give you his best shot and then he's done. No, our enemy will come at you again and again and again. And he'll come at you from every different angle until he he finds your weakest spot. And what is Satan's ultimate goal? It isn't just to tempt you. It isn't just to get you to sin. It isn't just to you know puff up your ego and then pop your bubble. It's to get you to spend eternity in hell with him, right? Satan knows that he is going down and he is determined to take you with him, right? As the Rolling Stone song says, Satan wants to lay waste to your soul, right? And so every strategy, every temptation, every attack is designed to get you to turn your back on Jesus, to to walk away from his forgiveness and to see your soul in hell with him for all of eternity. Praise God, this sermon does not end here. All right, if that's all these verses taught us, then it would be kind of a depressing message. It would sound like our defeat is certain that we've got no hope, but that's not what this passage is about. Yes, our enemy is real. Yes, our enemy is organized. Our enemy has a plan, but these verses are all about victory. And here is the encouraging, empowering truth. We can stand against the enemy. You can stand against the enemy. You can be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. But that's key, right? This strength is not my own. You you don't have this power in yourself. By myself, by yourself, we can never hope to stand against the devil. But through the power of God, through the the power of the resurrection of Jesus, through the power of his Holy Spirit living within us, we can overpower the enemy. And once we put on the full armor of God, then we can stand against any of the devil's schemes. All of his strategies are destined to fail before the power of God. Four times in these verses, Paul talks about standing strong. Verse 11, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Verses 13 and 14, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. right? And then he goes on to describe all the pieces of armor that, that will empower us to stand. And against a spiritual enemy, we have been equipped with spiritual armor. Truth, righteousness, the peace of the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God. These are things that will defeat the the enemy, that will defeat the devil and his schemes 
every single time. But here's the thing about your spiritual armor. You have to put it on. Right? That's a choice you have to make. Right? God supplies the armor, but you have to put it on. If you're not willing to stand for what is true and, and right, if you're not willing to stand in faith, if you're not willing to stand on the word of God, then you will not stand. You will fall. And I'll point something else out here. Notice that nowhere in this passage are we called to be the ones to defeat Satan. We aren't urged to win the victory. We don't have to defeat Satan. We're just merely called to stand our ground, to stand firm, to stand strong. Why? Because the devil's already been defeated. The decisive victory over the devil and his dark powers has already been won, and his final defeat is imminent. And all we have to do is stand. The war's already been won, and if we stand, we'll share in that victory. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul has written about the mighty power of God in this little letter. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 19, Paul writes about God's, quote, incomparably great power for us who believe, right? That's great power for you and for me. And this power is the same as the mighty strength, right? Same words there as the mighty power that he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, all right? There's that, that reference again. Far above every rule, authority, power, and dominion, all right? Very similar language to what we read there in chapter 6. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. So, so Jesus has power and authority over every other power and authority. Right? Did, did you hear that? Jesus has already defeated every ruler, every authority, every power, every dominion, every one, right? including Satan. There's no one demon that can escape the power of Jesus' resurrection. There isn't one sin that's exempt. There isn't one temptation that's excluded. All are under the dominion of our risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we simply stand in his power. So I want you to take that first verse in our passage, be strong in him and in his mighty power, and make that a personal affirmation, right? a, a declaration statement for your life. I can be strong in him and in his mighty power. Right? Say that. Say that to yourself. Say it out loud. I can be strong in him and in his mighty power. I can be strong in him and in his mighty power. Right? Believe that. Stand on that. Now, next week, we jump all the way from 1968 all the way to 2022 with a song that that hit both the country and rock charts, hitting number one and number four, respectively. And it's it's an autobiographical song, but it not only tells the story of the singer's life, but it's the story of each and every one of us. Thank you. And God bless. <laughs>